0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and uh, welcome back to Dave Tyndall. Hello, Dave. Hello again, who would have thought? Things have changed since your last appearance but uh, we won't dwell on that but all all I'll say is it was either you or Andrew Neil he's he's not busy now but uh, (laughs) he wouldn't answer my call so welcome back now for those who maybe weren't with us last time you were on, just explain who who exactly you are
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah well that'll clear things up for people (laughs) who think who the heck's he Um, I'm a a friend of the podcast Mm. I guess well I am um, that came to it in lockdown having having been a subscriber to snooker Scene magazine in the 80s um then it, i kind of reconnected with snooker during lockdown bought myself a six by three started playing reruns of the 1982 world championships bought a steve davis wig like you do um so yeah i'm just sort of a maybe the kind of um a good fit for this in that you you like being quirky and a bit A bit different so maybe my presence can add a bit of uh, strangeness to to this rather than having a a proper guest
1: well this podcast is nothing if not ripped from the day's headlines because of course you're you're a big noise in golf as well and we've just had the Ryder Cup um you you do you do podcasts and 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 you're a sort of betting expert I suppose well hopefully yes (laughs) (laughs) how did you see that I mean you, you did tip an American victory I believe yeah, I, I did uh,
0: tip a, a sort of convincing American uh, win. I think um, home advantage is a big thing in Ryder Cups, even more so. It's it's um, as, as the years go on, we're now not even getting close to Ryder Cups. We're just getting hammerings wherever it is by the home team. And um, linking it back to snooker, maybe um, there's something I'll say later about home advantage.
1: Okay. One, I mean, I sort of—I'm not a massive golf fan by any means. I dipped in and out. I, I found the the build-up unbearable. Um, I know you—I know you were part of that, and and hopefully made a made made a few quid from it. But it was so overhyped. And of course, what happened is you get to the start of it, and the crowd are just out of control. I mean, it was just kind of you know, it just I, I, I couldn't I couldn't listen to them. But also the some of the coverage, and you know, good luck to our, our dear friends at Sky Sports, but some of the coverage was so bombastic. I thought yesterday's come on, the guy's gone. Could it be the day of destiny, and then they play all this music? It's just, it's just golf at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's it is a long wait. the The,
0: the build up just takes forever, especially when it's in America. So you're not even getting started until what you know afternoon on Friday. And there's so many, so many things you can say. I'm glad I did my podcast early in the week because I'd kind of just go around in a loop by about Wednesday afternoon. Um, but yeah, it does get hyped, and it like a big boxing match, isn't it? When it gets hyped and then the outcome's a bit
1: naff, it all seems a bit embarrassing. I just think, and we're not a golf podcast, but my final word on this: when you know we saw Rory McIlroy was in tears, and some of the others, and they were saying, you know, this is the biggest thing in golf. I think gun, if they took a truth serum and it was a gun to their head, surely <laughs> winning the Open or the, or the Masters is got to be ultimately bigger, hasn't it? I don't know. Well, I think that they because they spend. 52 weeks
0: of most years um playing for themselves Mm. so individual when they kind of get back to this team thing i think it really does sort of get to them they really do appreciate maybe what they haven't got as Mm. people and then in an individual sport you know they haven't got teammates like footballers or rugby players or cricketers so i think it does really get to them and and they realize i quite miss all this camaraderie even Kind of ice people who are tough to crack, like Brooks Kepka. I think he realised, you know, perhaps life is about maybe just having shared experiences. So I think it, I I do believe Rory. I think it, it's a bit in the moment when he says that, but I, I think it's genuine when he when he does get choked up about about how his week's gone and it's not gone well when he's he's been in such this close environment with a load of his buddies.
1: Well, there is relevance to all this because I did last week on uh, on Twitter uh, just float the idea of a, a sort of snooker version of the Ryder Cup. I mean, obviously in pool they have the Moscone yeah. Cup, Europe Europe the America. In tennis this weekend they have this thing called the Labor Cup, which is Europe against a sort of rest of the world team. Even temp in bowling, they've got the Weber Cup. You know, so there's a lot of sports have these sort of uh, battles between continents and whatever. And my idea was maybe Europe versus Asia. So you'd obviously have a lot of Chinese-Thai players in the Asian team. European team would be largely British-based, but opportunities for other players as well. I put a poll up. We had over 1,000 respondents. 60% were in favour. It's fair to say a lot of the 40% who were against were very firmly against, which surprised (laughs) me a little bit because this this event doesn't exist. So it's not like, you know, it doesn't actually exist. It's just an idea. Um, Quite a few people said... Really, to make it competitive, it should be the UK against the world. I'm not yes. in favour. Of, I'm not, but I'm not in favour of that because I think actually that would that would actually flag up how snooker is lagging behind other sports globally. If if Britain had one team, and you, what you're saying is the other 200 countries of the world were all in the other team. So I do think personally maybe Europe against you could say Asia Pacific, or maybe Europe against the world as they as they do this tennis event. The exact format, how it would work, how many players, how they would be chosen, I don't know. But it was just an idea. The thing is, though, I mean, snooker feels like a very individual sport, but like you say, golf is that as well. And then suddenly, when they're in a team, you can see what it matters to them. So it may, it may be a runner. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've watched plenty of Moscone Cups and thought it was great, and you can see how much they're enjoying it. Um, yeah, I'd want. I do think it's a good idea. I'd I'd want to get kind of Neil
1: Robertson in there somehow. Well, this is the other this is the other thing, isn't it? You know. Would the players actually want to play in it? I mean, it, what is it actually something that would interest them? I suppose you know, the, the money obviously might, might come into it, but there's no guarantee you would get actually the, the people you would want to play in it. Maybe not. I mean, I mean, going back to the the kind
0: of eighties, I think it finished in the eighties. But one of my very favourite events was the that team event mm. when it, it just seemed like you had the perfect split of three good players from a certain country, like Canada. You'd have Werbenek, Stevens and um Auburn, of course. Whereas you've got Griffiths, Reardon, and Doug Mountjoy. I used to love those, because it sort of had a team feel to it. I don't mm-hmm. know, you, what you're talking about is a very different format, but um I still think the, the overall kind of idea that you get a team involved, I think it would work well just for something different. And I think it, you know, a, a lot of the, the talk, about Snooker in the last few years has been about sort of mental health and how difficult it is to be out on your own individually. I think a, a team thing would really bond people and, and then that could have a knock-on effect for for the, the rest of the season. Like, you know friendships would develop maybe strongly, made friendships for life even and then when they're out and about, they're
1: more likely to bond together maybe. Well, you know, it's just an idea. As I say, sixty um, percent for what for what it's worth, we're for it. Forty percent, not. We'll see. Uh, like everything, it'll come down to broadcasting sponsorship all the rest of it. Why, um,
0: why, why would yeah. why would people be against it? What what's the <laughs> Have you not been on the internet? People against people against a have, Yeah, I know it's sort of binary. And you've got to be yeah. for something or against
1: something. Yeah. But what what's the what's the downside of it? I, like I say, it's the internet people. People tend to be against stuff. Uh, but uh, speaking of speaking of for and against, and this is what's known as a segue. Um, <laughs> we, we've been speaking, recently about the Crucible. Of course, Joe Trump made his comments, thinking the world champions should move on. I was pretty clear; I didn't agree. Phil Yates was on last week; he didn't agree. He was very determinedly didn't agree. Dave, you've been to the Crucible as a as a spectator, um, as you've told us before, and I know you've got something to say on this subject. <laughs> Indeed, I do. I think if you'd asked me
0: at any point over the last 30 years, I would have thought, oh, what a what a ridiculous question. That It's not even up for debate. But since um, it's been mentioned as a possible idea that it couldn't be there, you know, Judd and Neil's comments. By the way, this is another area I want to go into shortly mm-hmm. about the fact that they were said by Judd and Neil, just hold that thought. I will. <laughs> um, yeah, my, I can't believe I'm sort of thinking this now, but I'd, I feel if I just said, oh, yeah, keep it there, I feel like I'm just another kind of white male from the 80s thinking, oh, you can't change this because it's always there. And, and I think when you're making the arguments I think to some extent you are seeing it through the prism of of who we are um as kind of blokes in our whatever 40s, 50s, 30s, 60s, whatever, that have grown up with it. So to to sort of address some of the things Phil said, I mean that's the great Phil Yates. Who am I to question him? But I just thought I'd I'd mention a couple of things. He he said some of the great moments Back to golf here. Some of the great moments in golf um, are when the Open is at St Andrews, but I mean the Open's only held there every five years. So, so when Shane Lowry wins at Royal Rush, does that diminish what he achieved because it wasn't St Andrews? And then Phil says, um, you, you know, what viewers when they when they watch an Open at St Andrews, they see the road hole and all the history of the hotels. Around it and that iconic landing, and you can say the same thing about the Masters. Um, when you see the beauty of Augusta National, you can see Amen Corner, the azaleas, all the pines, and the water. But, but, but view, viewers on TV—they're watching. Sorry to sort of strip this down to, to mm. the basics. Viewers on TV are essentially watching a twelve by six bit of wood, bays, and slate that isn't any different, whether you plonked it in Sheffield or or, or in China. Yeah, uh, we we sort of mock mock Americans when they talk about uh, the World Series in baseball because sort of no one else is invited to take part apart from American teams. I know there's a bit of a debate on that whether how it got named, but that's how it's viewed often, isn't it? That it's huh, it's the World Series, there are only American teams. But this is the world the World Snooker Championship. that so why can't it be played in other parts of the world? I think I think there's a sort of problem in the fact that the world championship for snooker is, is it's is it essentially it's be all and end all to, to lots of people i mean golf has got four majors a year and a multitude of different venues so you know give, given that the masters is, is at augusta every year and st andrews is at the open uh, the open is at, at st andrews every five years it means in any five year spell in golf the biggest elite events, you're getting 16 venues in those five years. I mean, athletics has got a world championship that moves around. The Olympics is is in a different location. But snooker's, it's not backed itself into a corner, but that's just the way it is. Snooker hasn't got the Olympics. It's once a year in the same venue. So is, is there not, as a, as a slight compromise, is there not scope to maybe alternate it between the Crucible and, say, China or Australia? Because if well, say if say Jud won it, I know that I'm not being very practical, but if say Judd won it in China, would you not say to him, "Oh, fair play, mate! You, one of your second world title came away from the home comforts of comforts of England, so
1: should that not have extra merit that he's he's won an away world championship?" Well, the, the, on that specific point, that I mean, it all boils down to the host broadcaster, which is the BBC. Now they pay a lot of money to show it. They don't want it in another country. Um, it, it's the times difference for a start in terms of the the, the hours they show it. The, the cost of showing it, uh, of producing it, going out to China would you know would cost a lot more. Um, so that really is the reason it's in the UK. What you say makes a lot of sense actually on a, on a pragmatic level to move it around. And actually, uh, this was floated about twenty years ago. Um, uh, snooker fans will remember there was a split in the game and there was a rival tour announced. It never happened, but. One of the sort of um, the ideas at that time from leading players. I mean, we're talking big names. But I mean, I'll mention one of them, Stephen Hendry, said he thought the world championship should go to different venues and, like St Andrews, come back to the Crucible every five years. So I absolutely see the logic in it. I don't agree. <laughs> I, right. I think it should. I think it should stay there because I think that venue means a lot to a lot of people, including people who've never been there. And actually, I've met people from other countries who've come over. Just to be at the crucible, literally to come, it means so much to them. So I think, I mean, I made the co- point, sort of the commercial reasons why actually it's a good deal for snooker. Um, I do think the history is actually important, but I can see the other side. I just don't agree with it. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're wrong at all. I'm just saying, and I get what you're saying about you've grown up with it. Well, that is a reason, but that that informs everything we look at in life. Uh, yeah. um, our experiences, you know. So. I don't see that as a bad thing, but I get, get. But move on because you mentioned Judd and Neil. Why they were important?
0: Well, l- let me throw this one at you. Mm. Um, what have those two got in common? Well, they're both left-handers. There you go. That that that's my answer. I've <laughs> I've ridiculously done some research about okay. left-handers and venues. Right. <laughs> okay. So, why why might they not want it to be at the Crucible? Because they have both got. Pretty average records for what they should be achieving. Neil's won it once, Judge won it once, and you can't believe that they shouldn't have won it more. So, this this is probably absolute hogwash and gobbledygook. And madness. well,
1: you're on the right podcast
0: for that. Yeah, but that's that. what I thought. Well, I'm going <laughs> to say it anywhere. Mm. Um, so I, I worked it out some percentages, maybe there's something kind of in the Feng Shui of the Crucible That doesn't suit a left-hander Because of the way their brains work And the the only The only exception to The left-handed argument I'm going to make Is Mark Williams, but I think his brain works Differently to anyone, so He doesn't count, but even if you Include him 47 uh, World Championships at the Crucible, just five Left-handed winners, so that's a strike rate Of 10.6% so i looked at some of the other venues and that is well shall i I run down them do you want the percentages go on why not off the top of your head could you could you guess at the best venue for a (laughs) left-hander no (laughs) No. it's quite a a new one there's a clue oh i I have no idea no idea
1: milton keynes maybe
0: absolutely the Marshall arena right so since we had Marshall Arena stepping in for COVID. 62% of the tournaments were won by a left-hander. So if I was Judd and Neil, I'd be saying, get it there, let's play there, because there must be something in the air. The the next one down was the Arena Riga, 50%. Good one for left-handers. Alexandra Palace, 33%, still pretty good. The Drome, 30% of all tournaments won there by left-handers. The Barbican, 27%. The Hexagon, going back a bit now, 20%. So all these are, are significantly above the 10% of the Crucible. Wembley Conference sent the dips to 14%. you have got Goffs at 13%. Newport, 12%. And then the two bottom ones, the two worst venues for left-handers are the Crucible at 106 And the worst one of the lock, you think of a famous one I've left out.
1: Um, did you mention the conference
0: centre? I can't remember. Yes, Wembley Conference, fourteen yeah. percent.
1: You see, people think, thought people thought Dave Tyndall was just someone who put on a wig and played snooker in his yeah. in back room. But here we are. You've done you've done some work. <laughs> who, who, who says Tyndall can't do
0: statistics? Yeah. Nobody does. It's re- widely regarded as one of my strengths. Um, <laughs> but the 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 bottom one is the Preston Guildhall with four point seven percent. A graveyard
1: for left-handers. No one said ever, but I've just no. said it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I where do we go from there? What I will say is, because I want to move on to another. It's, it's related, actually, this topic. But what I will say is, you made a very good case there. Um, you I think, you're right when you say a lot of us have an emotional connection. But I think if I didn't have an emotional connection, I probably wouldn't still be doing this job. You know, it's something that's in my blood, and I would like to see it continue there. And I would be sad if it if it moved but you've made, it, you've made a good argument. Um, but I'm going to move on, Dave, because this is related, actually. Now, Callum Law is written in, uh, and this is what Callum says. He says, I was just getting in touch to express my disappointment after reading about John Virgo, saying he expects this season to be his and Dennis Taylor's last with the BBC. I was disappointed when the BBC got rid of Clive Everton, and I feel the same way again. To me, John and Dennis are part of a unique and ever-diminishing group of people who have seen snooker all the way from the days of Joe and Fred Davis through the 80s boom, the arrival of Stephen Hendry, class of 92, etc. right up to the current day. As a result, in my opinion, they're uniquely placed to provide insight and I find my viewing pleasure is enhanced when John and Dennis are commentating. The one thing that always comes through with both of them, as it did with Clive, is their enthusiasm and love for the game of snooker. As John said himself, nothing lasts forever, but personally I'll still be very sad to see him and Dennis leave I do hope they will at least get a proper send-off from the BBC, unlike Clive, whose magnificent contribution to commentary and snooker as a whole was never properly recognised by the corporation. Well, this was an interview. uh, Thank you, Callum, for that. This was an interview that John Virgo did on the Talking Snooker podcast with Nick Metcalf and Phil Haig last week, and it was an excellent interview. You know, John Virgo, he's a great figure in the sport. He's a terrific raconteur. He had some brilliant stories about the days of big break and so on, his contribution to snooker, should be noted as a player, as a commentator. He was WPSA chairman, and of course, an all-round entertainer. Uh, John John, and Dennis, it's got to be said, both in their 70s, but uh, age shouldn't always be the determining factor. Joe Biden, 78, he's president of the United States. Now, we don't actually know the specific truth. This was John Virgo said he was led to believe this was gonna happen. Broadcasters, it's got to be said, are often keen to make a statement to show they're changing. Sky did it a couple of years ago. They dropped uh, David Gower and both them from their cricket coverage. Two legendary England cricketers Personally, I thought Gower was excellent and his intelligence and his analysis have been much missed. BBC did it, as Callum said, when they dropped Clive. Then they wanted to demonstrate they were becoming a bit more chatty, a bit more based on characters, coverage based around the personalities of the players. It also became much less journalistic. Um, and I think people probably know my opinion on this, but to me, dropping Clive is a bit like the Rolling Stones dropping Mick Jagger. You know, Probably the first time they've been compared to each other. Change for the sake of it doesn't always work, is, is the point. There's a lot to be said for experience. JV and Dennis represented snooker very well for a long time. They both played at the Crucible in 1977, the first year. Someone actually this weekend, this very weekend, uploaded onto YouTube coverage of the 81 World Final BBC coverage. Dennis Taylor is a studio pundit, so that's 40 years ago. JV in the, in the interval was shown doing his impressions. So, you know, you've got to salute them as legends of the sport. But the other side is, Virgo also said something in this interview, which does in part explain the criticisms Judd Trump made of the BBC before the World Championship and the criticisms that a lot of snooker fans have. He said that Trump had had a disappointing season. Well, the fact is he won five ranking titles and he ended it as world number one. That's not a disappointing season. The problem is he didn't win any of the three events that the BBC themselves televise. And yeah. this is the charge against the BBC. It's that their coverage exists in its own vacuum. And it's not helped. I'm going to bring it up again. It's not helped by World Snooker Tour championing this Triple Crown series, which to me has created a two-tier circuit which sometimes feels like the other events don't exist or don't matter, even though they're all equally difficult to win. Casual fans who only watch the BBC may not care about that. Ardent snooker fans certainly do. And even casual fans still want information on the players. It's not good enough for a commentator to start a broadcast saying they don't know anything about the players they're watching. Now, what I've noticed, of course, is, and this goes back to our our dear friends on Twitter, many of the people who actually very much agreed with Trump before the Crucible are now the same people saying, John and Dennis should be kept on, uh, su- such as sort of amnesia of social media. The fact is this, look, it's up to the BBC who they want to employ. John and Dennis have had a very good run. Some will want them to continue. Some will want to hear different voices. One thing's for sure is we know commentary. You won't please everybody. What I will say, as a, as a fan of the sport, I think it will be a sad day if we don't hear them again. They have both put in great service. Um, we'll see. I suppose it's just the natural order of things. They, they will be phased out. But do you have any strong opinions on this, Dave?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to that podcast. It was really enjoyable. I I uh, sent Nick a, a text saying, "Well done for asking John about his political views compared to Jim Davidson's." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which John wisely dodged, I think. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, I don't really i I don't really get it. Why it's not like John Virgo and Dennis kind of run onto the screen um dancing and 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 sort of showing themselves um in front of the the camera i can see why maybe in front of the camera people might want a sort of younger face but i think you can't beat experienced voices and they 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 lend themselves to to sport i mean so many off the top of my head you know peter o'sullivan in racing obviously ted lowe in snooker um I mean, even now in football, you've got Martin Tyler. I mean, how long has he been doing that? Well, I
1: since mean, the seventies, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. incredible. You sort of play an old clip, and you think, "Is that Martin Tyler commentator? <laughs> and it and it still is, and he's still got relevance, and, and he's still, you know, a sharp analyst on the game. And and I think Dennis and and John, yeah, it saddens me that when I heard that, I thought, "Oh no!" I know you could argue this is possibly contradicting what I've said about you know, snooker maybe moving on a bit, but I, I, I'd i rather those two went out on their own terms because I still think you've got a lot to offer. I still think you can mix. I don't see why it has to be so definitive when you think, right, that's them done. Why can't you just have a mix of them and
1: a few well, it may be to be, fair, to be fair, it may be that. We don't know for sure because John, he, he, what he was saying was he has, he, he, that's the impression he's been given. He, he didn't, yeah. I don't think it's absolutely definitive. I know that IMG, who make the snooker programmes for the BBC, they've won the contract again for that, so... They're continuing. But as I say, sometimes broadcasters, and it will be the BBC's decision, like to make statements to show that they've changed. They made one at the World Championship. They brought in Trump and Jack Luzowski yeah after, um, after Judd's comments. So they did actually, you know, very much react to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose the question is, you know, how long do people should people go on? I mean, there have been examples of great broadcasters. David Coleman was one who probably went on too long because yeah. kind of no one had, the, no one sort of wanted to say sorry, David, but maybe you'll have to stand down.
0: Yeah, but you know, they seem a long way from that stage. I think yeah. you can't yeah. you can't buy um, kind of an experienced voice as a common as a commentator. It's part of the the whole thing. It's not just the players. You know, involved in the action, the, the commentator can bring so much to it, and you you can't just get any old Tom Dick and Harry to come in. So they they're worth their weight in gold. People like John Virgo and Dennis Taylor. I'd be I'd be
1: you know very sad to see them go. I agree, except I do think there's an issue with, and I'm not um, criticizing anyone in particular, but if you're going to do the job, you have to be across stuff, you know. And to say Judge Trump had a disappointing season, he didn't. OK, he didn't win the World... He played in three BBC events... In fact, he played in two BBC events. He couldn't play in the Masters because he had COVID. The UK Championship, he lost 10-9 on the ping in the final. And the World Championship, he got to the quarters. So even those three events, actually, weren't that disappointing. Yeah, um, but does that not... Is this
0: not sort of we're going round in... We're kind of back to where we were. Is that maybe not John's opinion that the World Championship is massive? And it, and if Judd doesn't win that, surely well, you would say... Ronnie O'Sullivan had a disappointing season. If he won a few times, but didn't win the world, wouldn't you? Is it well, yes just? To, is he just? I suppose. Yes it sounds a bit too much. Kind of like he's ignored everything else. But
1: I, I think you're right. I think. But put it this way, okay? Where I would agree with 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 you about that, and and Virgo about that, is Judge Trump. To, I said this before. To be known, to be regarded as a great snooker player, you have to win. I think. Multiple world titles, definitely, and you have yeah. to win. And yeah, but you also have to win lots of other tournaments. Uh, if you look at the greats—Davis, Hendry, O'Sullivan, John Higgins, William Selby—so there's five all-time greats. They've all done that. They've all won multiple world titles. They've all won lots of other tournaments. Judge Trump so far has won lots of other tournaments. He's won one world title, but he's 32, so we don't know, you know, how many more he'll win and what his career will look like at the end of it. You can't really judge him in, until, you know, down the line. Um, so you could. I understand what, what JV's saying, uh, not stepping up to the plate in the World Championship, but you can't just ignore everything else he's done, I suppose. And I, I, I'm not saying he did, but I, I think that, that comment was a bit glaring. I know a lot of players have picked up on it online and said, what are you talking about? Anyway, I want to move on because we, we, we've we got other emails I want to get to. Uh, Glenn Shaw, he says, I'm Canadian here. I grew up in North America's fast food pool, but much prefer snooker's cerebral demands, colourful personalities and elegant approach. So new to the sport and really appreciate your podcast. Always interesting. Thanks so much. Two questions, if that's OK. One, why do snooker players tend to tap their bridge hand and or middle fingers as they flutter, <laughs> prepare for their shot? Two, why do snooker players tend to age out? Ronnie Higgins and Williams excluded, of course. Mental pressures, eyesight, personal time commitments. On the first one, <laughs> I mean, Tony Mio was the most famous. I was about to practice. say that. Yeah, he used to I do used this. To, I... I used to copy that because well, I that's I, exactly the... I saw uh, Tony Mio do it that's exactly it. I think so many people did that and they didn't know why they were doing it. They just seen Mio do it on telly. So they thought, Oh, well, that's something you do. I mean, I think it's partly, it's partly a nerves thing. It's partly some people have suggested it's sort of about timing the shot. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that kind of is it. And the second one, um, in theory, okay, snooker is not a physical sport. So why shouldn't older players be able to continue? I definitely think eyesight is an issue. Um, your eyesight typically starts to change in your 40s. Um, I've seen, for example, Graham Dot wearing glasses, you know, when he's not playing. And that's got to have an effect on how you play because, you you know, you're, you're seeing things differently. Now, those three, the, the Holy Trinity, Ronnie, John Higgins and Mark Williams, they seem just immune from all of that stuff at the, moment, yeah. at, the mo- at the moment. But, you know, that's not to say it won't change. I think that will be the reason they start to decline. I think it will be eyesight. They, they they all keep themselves, you know, reasonably fit and and they don't live wild lifestyles or anything. So I think that could be it. I think eyesight could be the reason but you know, Fred Davis, yeah, he wore glasses and he was he played at the cruise at the age of seventy. So it's not necessarily a career ender, but it might start the decline possibly.
0: Yeah, wasn't it didn't Anthony Hamilton have sort of laser surgery and it didn't mm. go quite as well as he thought?
1: Yeah, really? and, and the other side of the other side of that is Judd Trump had it. And that was just before he, he, he had sort of eyesight issues. He had laser surgery. It went really well, needless to say, and that's just before he started his, his amazing run. So I, I definitely think it's something that's not really talked about, but I definitely think yeah. it is an issue.
0: I mean, personally, I, I thought I had brilliant vision up until uh, the age of 40. And then um, I took my son to get a pair of glasses and I, I kind of was trying to join in with his test and I couldn't see it. I, I do sometimes wonder, though, what what is it about the ice? I mean, I, I I still play snooker now without glasses and don't just don't need them. What what what
1: can't you see? <laughs> no, I ju- I think it's your perspective changes. Um, right. so sort of the, the the near vision changes, and you're maybe just not seeing things quite the same way. You're Not quite seeing them as sharply maybe as before. I mean, we've already mentioned Dennis, of course. You know, famously winning in glasses, and to me, people. Yeah. People talk about the nature of that final, understandably, because he went to the last black. But the great achievement for me, as someone who wears glasses, was the fact that he he won it in a pair of you know gla- <laughs> glasses that he was sort of ribbed for and, and you know mocked for when he started, yeah. first started wearing them. But needless to say, he had the last laugh. He did. I'm going did... I'm, I'm to Jack Carnham. Yeah. Who made Jack Carnum, yeah, he was uh, an optician, weirdly, as well as a snooker commentator. Uh, yeah, he made them. I'm going to move on. We've got one more email, and then in fact, we've got two more emails. James Heat. Uh, I enjoyed your conversation with Phil Yates about the US Open pool. Do you happen to know why they racked using a template in the earlier rounds and a conventional triangle in the later rounds? Well, James, I've looked into this and apparently it's because they had so many tables that they the sort of senior referees obviously couldn't referee all of them. So it was easier to use that template. And then, as you say, later on, they switched to the triangle. So it's just because they had so many matches to get through. Apparently that was the reason. Paul Mastrelli. Now, this is about the British Open. Paul has sent his his idea for what the format should be. Um, now obviously we're, we're an audio service, so we can't actually see it, but he, he does give some explanation. It comes down to starting three days earlier. He He wants to start it on the Friday. Um, he says, Decatur for the four-table format, much smooth smoother transition between rounds. The tournament would have to be elongated by a few days. Uh, he says, the draw for each round should take place live on ITV4. And uh, yeah, I, I, I the, you can't see what he said. So it's kind of a bit redundant, me talking about it, other than to say the problem really, Paul is it's uh, elongating the tournament because that adds cost, It adds cost to hiring the venue. It would add production costs for the broadcaster significant. If you're going to do three more days, I think possibly the solution, because it was a very busy event, although they got through the matches, you know, they got through them pretty well, Um, but maybe just filter a few out with qualifiers. That's what they're doing for the home nations. Um, let's be honest, you know, we're all snooker fans, but there are some matches there that you don't need to see at the venue. Um, the other thing is ITV4, who the broadcaster for the British Open th- this season, they're also at the mercy of live racing. So there's some afternoons, like the last afternoon, they couldn't show any snooker because they had racing on. They have to share with other sports. So that comes into all formats. In terms of having the draw for every round live, the problem with that is it goes on forever in the early rounds. I mean, if you do the draw for the last 64, you know, that's 32 matches you've got to pull out. 64 names, obviously, that, that takes about fifteen minutes. Not great telly, really. Um, they, will Snooker did the draw in the players' room, which which was not great telly either. But it wasn't. But it wasn't live. They just put it on YouTube. Um, but thanks for you, you've you thought about it, which is good. And uh, you did say you feel free to send this on, so I will send it on, and uh, we'll see what they say. Maybe they'll go for it. In which case, I'll hail you a genius. But uh, that's the issue, I think, uh, lengthening the tournament because broadcasters pay. For a certain uh, number of days, the venue is high for a certain number of days. So if that is increased, then the costs also also increase. Did you see any of the British Open, Dave?
0: Yeah, bits and bobs, Mm. and um, yeah, I I agree with that. I like I like format changes Mm. for people who think about them in
1: depth. No, no, it's very it was very in depth. I just can't. I haven't worked out a way to actually show it on screen because we don't have a screen. No, (laughs) because we're Um, because we're because we're a podcast.
0: We are. Um, I also. Um, did watch quite a bit of the poll. I'm one of these idiots who thinks Who watches a bit of it and thinks I could win that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then clearly I'd get absolutely hammered um, all over the place. But I used, I used to play. Um, Leeds is obviously famous for the Northern Snooker Centre, which is up for sale. Yeah,
1: big I news, saw you yeah. put that.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. dear. That hope it's not some bloke who wants to renovate flats or something.
1: Well, that's the concern, isn't it? I mean, because that it's 47 years. The Williamson's have owned that, and it was you know, the key thing about the Northern is it opened before the snooker boom, so they saw an opportunity yeah. before really, you know, the game had exploded. And yeah, I mean, if that ever if that ever closed as a snooker oh. club, that would well be awful, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it's my
0: it's my local. It's yeah. where well, I've always played my snooker, so that'd be terrible. There used to be a really good pool place in Leeds called the Elbow Rooms. Right, um, I used to play quite a lot of pool. Uh, I think that closed down unfortunately. Um, but I sort of won a couple of times there. Won a few things. The uh, I think it's it's when you say how big the pockets are that it, it mm. lulls you into a sense of security. That that that's the be-all and end all. When obviously the tactics are, are beyond what um, silly amateur players like me think uh, that you need to be able to to know. Because um, when I play. Um, so when you play the average person, they just sort of sling the white all over the place. They can play, but they sling the white all over the place. And because the pockets are so big, they just go in off all the time. They've just got to sort of keep a, a, a quiet white on them. But yeah, I, I enjoyed Judd playing Now I'd like to see more of it. You, you were saying Mark Selby's done really well at,
1: over there. Well, he's, well, Mark Selby, as we record this, he's playing in an eight-ball event, the ultimate uh, pool event uh, this evening. It's on Free Sports um, with Gareth Potts, his, his brother-in-law. I think the thing about nine- and eight-ball pool, for the sort of regular guy and girl, they're they're more enjoyable to play because yeah. a frame of snooker, if you know good, can last for an hour. And it's, yeah. no, it's no fun for anybody But on a full-size table, but pool in a convivial sort of pub atmosphere is a lot of fun. We've got about 10 minutes left, Dave, so I want to just... Uh, throw a couple of things over to you i was interested in obviously you know you say you were a fan in the 80s you sort of drifted back to snooker who are dave Tyndall's sort of favorite players going back in the day and sort of more more modern
0: yes i i i was very much of the steve davis fan Mm -hmm. club uh not literally like the david taylor fan club (laughs) Um, i was he he just coincided with me getting into snooker his rise um, and I thought that was great because it, it, it allowed me to to kind of get on board with somebody new rather than someone like I don't know, maybe like John Spencer or or Ray Reardon, although I did really like Ray Reardon and, and my first snooker cue was a John Spencer snooker queue. Uh, wow. then I had a I think I had a Jim Rempe pool cue. <laughs> wow. It was quite a thing. Um but yeah, so so growing up, Steve Davis was my hero and that and obviously, 81 was fantastic. That was just, it couldn't have gone better. Sometimes you watch sport and you, you kind of hope that the guy you've invested all this emotion into will do what he's supposed to do. And Steve Davis did it that year and it was just perfect. And then in 82, this this still gets to me now. I don't exactly wake up in a cold sweat, but when when I think of, I spot So I support Liverpool. Sometimes, and, and that's been a really good thing to to be in the last few years. But during some of the more iffier times, and maybe, maybe I thought this in the in the Champions League final in two thousand and five, I kind of think back to Davis versus Tony Knowles as as the ultimate in something that can go wrong. Mm. So so I started to think it's possible that a team you're playing against could have eight shots on goal and score all eight and it's going to be 8 nil. And, and it just, it panics me that that could happen because it did happen and I watched that unfold. As a massive Steve Davis fan and it was just awful. It was just, I couldn't, I, I, I still think that's got to be one of the biggest shocks I've ever seen. I know Hendry lost, did he lose 9 nil To Marcus Campbell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to Marcus Campbell. But I still think what event was that in? It wasn't in a massive event, was it? UK,
1: was the UK it was not non televised, but I mean, that's still not 9-0. the
0: world. Yeah, mm. it's still not the world. So for Davis to, to do that and to get hammered um, mm. is odd. And, and bizarrely, I, um, well, not bizarrely, but I grew up in Whitehaven um, in Cumbria and very occasionally would get a kind of guest snooker player come and play at the Whitehaven Civic Hall. And Tony wow. Knowles came there to to play Jimmy White, and I was a big Jimmy White fan. And I I, I must have blanked it out, but you know my diaries that we we read mm. from. Yeah. Um I looked at it and found the date, it was about 1984 or five. And Tony Knowles beat Jimmy White 9-1. And I thought, <laughs> oh, there's something spooky about this. Whenever I go to watch a play that I really love, and Tony Knowles hammers them. So <laughs> That's a bit
1: odd, yeah. Um, what was the original question? No, oh. I was just asking about your favourite player. So let's update it then. So since you've come back to snooker, I, I know you went. You saw Ronnie O'Sullivan, I think, at the Crystal yeah. this year, didn't you? That was uh, that was exciting. Yeah. So uh,
0: I mean, I'm, it's fairly. I mean, obviously Davis was wasn't a great entertainer as such, but I was a big Alex Higgins fan, and I, I very quickly when Davis went out in '81, I did I did jump on the Alex Higgins sort of bandwagon and and. Um, and was thrilled to see him win by, I think uh, at that age, I think I was starting to appreciate the Maverick more. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was sort of thrilled to see John McElroy winning Wimbledon, having just thought he was a brat when I was a little, a smaller kid. I was beginning to see sort of talent, wayward talent or fragile talent. Cause with Higgins, cause he was so all over the place with his body movement. You were just on edge at every single shot. Plus you're on edge about how he might react to missing, so mm-hmm. definitely Higgins. Um, I, I really, really didn't like Stephen Hendry, Ooh. which is really odd because I love him now. I think he's great. I, I just want him to win every match. It's not going to happen, but I think all his his um his commentary is great. I like his musical taste. He likes the Smiths and stuff like that. Um So I think he's brilliant. But at the time, I I just I don't know. I wouldn't say. Did he drive me away from snooker? Maybe this is an essay I can start to write. <laughs> when. But I don't know. It just became too too obvious that he could win. And I remember that year when he, he fell in the shower and, and broke his mm. arm. Mm. And because I was so into Jimmy White back then, it had moved. I was finally, finally, we're going to get. And he still won. And he, I could not believe it. So he kind of blocked my path a bit. Then we talked about this on another podcast, My um dallas um coma years
1: Mm.
0: i didn't get into it but so nowadays a massive ronnie fan i root for the guys who i see in the northern snooker center david Mm. grace and peter lines oliver lines so i'd be rooting for them um i do like neil robertson just really good to watch and i really like judd i think one of my um perhaps going back again i think Judd needs to win the world championship again, but I think the world championship needs Judd Trump to win it again. Mm. I think with, with, and this is why I'm more open to it moving, because it might take that. I don't know. I, I always, this kind of, it's a bit of a strange area, this one, because Judd Trump is kind of the best player, but he's not, and in previous eras, the best player just won a load of world championships and it's not happening, so it's a bit confusing.
1: I still think, though, yeah, I agree, but there's still time. Listen, he's 32. Um, if you look at some of the other players, John Higgins, he won his first world title when he was very young. He won his second just before his 32nd birthday, and he's gone on to win four. Mm. Mark Selby was 30, when I think, when he won his first world title. You know, he's gone on to win four so far. Um, and even Ronnie, we've seen the longevity he's had. So... You know, we we don't know is the point, That's isn't it? We don't know. Um, we we take your stats on board with the left-handers. <laughs> but here's a question, though. Going back to that, so because Ronnie O'Sullivan plays a lot of shots left-handed, so have you factored that into your to your calculations or not? <laughs> no, uh, that would be far too confusing. I've not got an algorithm that does that. And in terms of, um, I'm I'm interested in. Because obviously, you know, I work in snooker full time, and and I think you lose a little bit of perspective when you do that, because you know it's something that I'm involved in all the time. As a as a fan who sort of come back to the sport, how much snooker would you watch during the year? There's a lot of people who will watch everything. There are some people who will dip into the big events, as we do with all sports. Where where do you sort of stand? Because there's a lot of tournaments going to be coming up shortly.
0: Yes, at the moment, I'm obviously craving some snooker. Yeah. Um, the World Championship, I will watch. Mm. Every possible session. I'm I'm quite lucky. I'm so I'm a freelance sports writer. So I I work well because of COVID. I work all the time from home, Mm. but I've got the option to always have it on. So sometimes it might not fall right because I've I've got commitment with the kids and stuff like that. But I can sometimes watch a maybe middling event or virtually most of it. Mm. But yeah, I I watch a lot of snooker nowadays. Um, I just back to that why anyone watches snooker maybe, I just find
1: it absorbing
0: um, Well,
1: well it's, it, it, it's, it's good that you've come back a, a lot of people have said that over the lockdown you know, they've sort of, I guess because people were just stuck indoors and they've just sort of discovered it again and maybe remembered why they liked it in the first place we're going to have to wrap up there Dave, but thanks for coming on that's flown by, that, we could have we gone on that's flown by, we must have you on again um, uh, in, in future weeks if that's alright, but uh, thank yeah, you for your fun Thank yeah. you for your company. Yeah. I should I should say, as we always do, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. You can check out their other podcasts. Uh, you can email us snookerspodcast at mail.com. Snookersenepodcast at mail.com. The qualifiers are going on today th- as we record this. Uh, this is people say snooker's an eccentric sport, okay? Sure. Stephen Hendry's gone to Barnsley for a tournament where they're playing for the Stephen Hendry trophy. That tournament is the Scottish Open in <laughs> Wales, in Wales. So That's where we are at the moment in the snooker world. These qualifiers are are dragging on and on. I know why. It's because they make money from the betting streams. Good luck to them. I've said it before, though. I think they could do a bit more with the coverage because it is kind of a bit anonymous. You know, it's it's almost witness protection scheme, anonymous. It's going on. I'm sure people are enjoying it, but it's not exactly being foregrounded very much. Uh, But the next event, TV event, will be the Northern Ireland Open, and that starts in a couple of weeks. So we will actually have some snooker and then after that they come pretty much thick and fast which is good news because as dave said we missed it but uh, we must wrap up there dave once again thank you for your company yeah cheers dave and uh, we'll be back in some form or other next week
0: sports social podcast network
1: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
0: lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office